Indeed, you do practice it towards all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are inadequate to understand the greatness and the depth and the width and the breadth of your will and your word in and of ourselves because it is spiritually discerned. So, Father, we ask that you show us by your spirit the meaning and the truth and by the power of your spirit convict us of this truth so that we may understand it, we may grasp it, take hold of it, and build our life on it so that we may grow in our Christ-likeness. We ask you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the past few weeks, we have been looking at this practical life of the church. Paul had made the transition from the doctrinal aspect to the practical aspect in chapter 4, where he says, Finally then, brethren, we ask you and exhort you how you ought to walk, um, that you excel still more. And then he talks about the commandments he's given them. So this is a practical part of our sermon or our, our lesson or, or this letter. How do we as a church actually live the Christian life practically? That's what we've been looking at. We saw that we have to do it in excellence, the first three verses, and then uh, in the first two verses, and then in the next three verses, we saw that we ought to do it fulfilling the, the will of God by um, the way that we abstain from sexual immorality, learn how to control our body, and also living according to the call. And last week, we saw that ignoring this, rejecting this, is not rejecting man, but it's actually rejecting God himself, because it is him that requires us, he gives us this, his spirit, at the point of salvation, and therefore he is the one who sanctifies us. So this walk of sanctification is to be lived according to his will, according to his, his commands, and according to the power that he bestows upon us, he gives us, he instills in us. And that was such a great comfort to know that we have the Holy Spirit to cause us to do the will of God, which we saw last week. Now this week, it seems, Paul is making another transition in verse 9 to a more corporate, to a more collective, to the public sphere of the Christian life. Main emphasis being, the love for one another, right? This is what he writes about. Now concerning love of the brothers. This is the main emphasis of this passage that we see here. The focus of this, these two verses is around love for the brothers. You notice there's four times, even in these two verses, that this love for the brothers and for love for one another is referred to. So. This passage clearly is about what we do with one another, how we live our Christian lives in the corporate realm, in the collective, in the public realm. Because walking how you ought to in excellence and doing the will of God, which is sanctification, especially in terms of sexual purity, as a result of God's gift of the Holy Spirit, can seemingly be a private practice, right? Like all of these things can seem like these are things that you do on your own, right? I need to be excellent in the way that I live my Christian life. I need to pursue excellence. 
a need to abstain from sexual immorality and learn how to control my body and actually live in a way that brings honor to God and not reject God for the sake of my own pleasures. That seems to be more of a private practice. It seems like I can do that on my own. So long as I read my Bible and I hear my favorite sermons online, you know, I don't necessarily have to communicate that with others. That is a seemingly private issue. And I say seemingly because it's just what it looks like from the outside. This is not how God has designed salvation for all of us. It is supposed to be lived out in a communal um, sphere, in a public sphere, in a corporate way, in a collective way. As a church, we are to love one another. That's why Paul takes this transition so that we don't fall in the trap of saying, oh, there is such a thing as the soul ranger Christian. Like, I just need God. It's my own relationship with Christ that matters. Yes, that is true. It is a personal relationship with Christ. That does matter. But Paul is saying that's not the only thing that matters. And we'll see this in our passage today so that we don't get tempted by by that kind of thinking that the Christian life is to be lived out only in my own mind, in my own heart, in your own practice before God. But the Christian life is also lived in relationship with other Christians. So he writes regarding this love the Thessalonian church possesses toward fellow believers. Greek word for that is Philadelphias, not the city up north, but the actual word that the city was named after, right? What is Philadelphia known for? The city of brotherly love. That's what that means, right? But I want you to keep that word because we see how Paul makes a transition from that word for brotherly love to what God has taught them. So as Paul, in this passage, describes the Thessalonians as, and this will be our outline, um, he describes the Thessalonians as a loving church with no need for instruction. He describes them as being divinely equipped, where he says that they are taught by God. And he also describes them as being visibly obedient. Not only they have been taught by God, but they have practiced it. They do practice this. This is the visible obedience that we'll see. And yet, this church is also described as needing to excel with room to grow. And we will unpack this as we, as we see, as we continue to look at these two verses in depth. So again, as a working definition, this word that he uses in verse 8 concerning love of the brothers, which is the word Philadelphias, is referring to this sincere goodwill that family members show to one another. You all have families. There's this sense of goodwill we show to one another. You show to one another as your family members, which is characterized by this mutual respect where there's no conflicts of rank, that everybody knows who, who is what in that family. Everybody knows and understands the role. The older brother is the older brother, and the youngest brother is the youngest brother. So there's a distinct role. There's no conflicts between the two ranks. We know who mom is, and who know, we know who dad is, and what position. So there's no conflict and that goodwill. And there's no hypocrisy. And there's... It's full of enduring, and there's a sense of hospitality. 
This is the love for the brothers that Paul is referring to. In, uh, in 1 Peter, this is how Peter describes it. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for your love of the brothers. You notice how it's characterized here, this love for the brothers. This Philadelphia is characterized as one having been without hypocrisy. This fervent love for one another from the heart. So these are the characteristics of what it means to have love for the brothers. Right, this is the proof that true spiritual, by the way, just as an aside, what does it mean to be spiritual? I had contemplated that a while. Most people would say, hey, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's not some mystical, mysterious, bubbly stomach feeling and this cloud and gold dust and all of that. Not that kind of way, but true spirituality is simply to be spiritual, if I may simplify it, is to be biblical. The way that God desires to be known by His revelation, through His revelation of His Word, if it's spirit-filled words are going to be the ones that are going to cause us to live spiritual life. So that's a, as an aside, you get that for free. Um, but the proof of this true spiritual walk, and this is why I said true biblical faith, has taken root in your life, is displayed by the way we show a love for one another. This is what Paul is describing here, and the Bible throughout describes this as well. Let's look at John chapter 13 as an example. Verse 35. This is when Jesus has washed his disciples' feet. And Peter said, don't wash my, my feet. And Jesus said, no, I need to wash your feet. And he explains it to him. He was just like, okay, if that's the case, give me a bath then. And he was like, no, you don't need a bath. You've already been saved. You've already been washed. You've already been clean. But there is this cleansing that needs to continually happen, this sanctification, the walk of sanctification that still needs to happen. And this is the context which we find in John 13, 35, where Jesus himself says to his disciples, By this all will know that you are my disciples. How does the world know that you are a Christian? How can I see as an unbeliever or as even as a believer that you belong to Jesus Christ? Here's a clear indication, a definition of what the Lord says. By this you will know that you are my, the world all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, do you notice the emphasis of loving one another. This goodwill that a family member has for one another, without hypocrisy, with this fervent love from the heart, as we saw in First Peter. So it seems here that the Thessalonians didn't need any instructions. They didn't need any pointers concerning this issue, right? This is why Paul writes to them in verse 9, Now concerning love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Wow, these guys are really loving. Because after all, flip with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where Paul says in verse 3, I remember this without ceasing in, the, in our prayers. So that this is what Paul remembers. Their labor of love in verse 3. That's something that was on Paul's mind constantly. How they labored in love. 
And when Paul has sent Timothy to the church after being so worried, and as we saw in chapter 3 and verse 6, then Timothy comes back, and one of the reports that he tells him is that their love, look at that, but now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. So Paul already has this report that they are laboring in love, chapter 1, verse 3, and this report of their faith and love given to him by Timothy. So he already knows this. So he writes to them and says, regarding love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So this is a loving church. They love one another seemingly, and, and, and just from what we read here. But notice the conclusion Paul reaches. The conclusion that Paul reaches regarding them not needing any instructions. It's not their intrinsic, like their, 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 their intrinsic predisposition. It's not their cultural values. They weren't just loving people because they lived in a loving city and you know they grew up in a society where love was the dominant aspect of life and therefore they were just, you know, they couldn't help it but love one another. That's not the conclusion that Paul reaches regarding their love. It's not even how they were raised and what family they were raised. It's not even their zeal and their their Working so hard is something that they, they are, they're seeking. That's not the conclusion that Paul reaches in terms of how they are so loving. In terms of them not needing any instruction about their Philadelphia, about their love for one another. It's not because of their fervent effort to love one another. That's not the conclusion that Paul reaches. Paul says... The source of this love is God Himself. Do you see that? Do you see in verse 9 that you have no need that anyone to write to you about love for the brothers, for you yourself are taught by God. This is not something, and I don't want you to hear me say, you must love one another, so you must show this kind of whatever your definition of love is, whatever you grew up thinking love is, whatever your love language is, show that to one another. And you need to work really, really hard so that you can prove that God has truly saved you. I don't want you to hear me say that. This is what Paul is saying as well. He's saying it's not because you were inherently loving that you're showing this love for one another i mean we read it in our scripture reading first john chapter 4 not that we loved him first but he loved us not that we loved god but he first loved us right so in the same way our predisposition is not necessarily to show this loving attitude towards one another. I mean, consider where you come from. Consider the different backgrounds that we in this room bring to this church. The different families, the different upbringings, the different experiences, the different traumas, the different fill in the blank, the different looks, the different preferences, everything else that we can think of that we are bringing to this church, the different level of spiritual maturity, and yet we are to love one another. So if you are loving one another based on what you think that should look like, then you have shortchanged yourself. The Church of the Thessalonians wasn't dependent on that. They were taught by God. That's why they have no need that no one writes to them about how to love one another. 
God is the one who imparts this knowledge and wisdom. And this really, by the way, goes back to how Paul finishes at verse 8. Look down at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8. Consequently, he who sets aside is not setting aside man, but God, the God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. And then he says, now concerning love. This is based on you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have God living inside of you. The, the third person of the Trinity, who is the Spirit of God, you have Him living in you. And as a result of that, you can actually love your brothers. So it all kind of ties together. I just wanted to make that bridge visible. It's not something that you are supposed to do on your own and try to figure out what that means and go up and down the aisle and find out. No, it's just because you are already filled by the Spirit as a Christian. When you are saved, the Spirit comes and resides in you. You abide in Him and He abides in you. And therefore, as a result, you can love God and you can love one another because you are taught by God. For God is the one who imparts this knowledge and this wisdom. And I told you what that word that he uses in, verse, in the beginning of verse 8, in terms of the uh, beginning of verse 9, in terms of love for the brothers, was Philadelphia, right? But he actually makes this transition of this word for love to agape in the second portion of that. Now concerning Philadelphia so to speak, if you were reading it in, in Greek, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for yourselves are taught by God to agape one another. This is how the Greek would read. So he uses a different word in terms of the love that God teaches his children. Not the Philadelphia love, the brotherly love, but it's the agape love. This is love that has a sense of satisfaction, that has a sense of to be in, to receive, that has a sense of to greet, to honor. It's more inward than anything else. It has a sense of seeking after something with an element of sympathy. But it also has the sense of preference, active, not self-seeking love. And I hope you're picking up on the different characteristics of this agape love because this is how God finds us, right? God is love, we read today, 1 John chapter 4 in our scripture reading. This is his identity. This is who he is. And because he is love, He's all sufficient. There's this, this level of he doesn't need anything from anyone, right? This, that's why this love is described as, as having a sense of being satisfied. This is the love of God, right? There's this sense of honor and there's this seeking after with an element of sympathy even attached to it. This active, not self-seeking love. This is what they're taught as a church. By the way, this word for love was not the most preferred word for love in first century Greco-Roman society. It wasn't sought after. This kind of love was seen as inferior to Philadelphia or even to Eros love, which is more or less a passionate love, you know, kind of like one a husband would have towards a wife. This kind of love in the greater society where Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, the agape love was not really seen as being elevated higher than that. 
Everybody sought out after this passionate love, burning with passion, which is kind of transactional if you, if you know what that means. And, and even this Philadelphia, the Philadelphian love, the brotherly and all-inclusive love was more sought after in, in the culture that the first Thessalonians lived in. Ah, agape love, who cares, man? Like it's, it's, it's a low-tier love to the culture. Because it's active, it's, it prefers, it seeks not itself. This is, what, this is what God teaches and imparts for His church, however. The one that is not accepted by the culture. It's not used by the culture. It's seen as inferior by the culture. This is the kind of love that God teaches and imparts to His church. This love that Paul defines in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4-7. through 7. You guys know this. This is a familiar one. You guys can listen to it. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. It's not puffed up. It's not, it does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, and endures all things. This is the agape love that God teaches His church. But this is the agape love that the world rejects. And they don't seek after it as much as this passionate eros, Eros love, or even this all-inclusive Philadelphia love, right? Everybody, love is love. You know, I keep saying that. Still, I've been here, what, six, seven months? Nobody has ever come up to me and answered that question. What does that mean, love is love? Right? But just accept everyone. You know, God is love. He accepts everyone. Jesus is love, so, but what they're saying is this all-inclusive type of love. But what God has taught His church, and this is significant in our portion of Scripture today, concerning Philadelphia, God Himself has taught you agape to agape one another. This is a love that the world rejects. The world does not know it. And notice how John says it, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Uh-oh. Technical difficulties. Oh, there it is. Found it. Good. See how great a love the Father has given to us. And actually, if you were reading in the, in the King James and in the New King James, I like the way that it's translated there. What manner of love is this? Like John is saying, I'm, my mind is blown. This is a, a, what manner of love is this? See how great a love the Father has given to us that we could be called children of God. And we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Because God has given us this agape love, and through that agape love, He has called us His children. And because the world rejects that agape love and prefers more of the Eros or the Philadelphia love, then they can't come to know who God is. Again, this is not something you do on your own. This is not something that you work out on your own. Notice this. Go with me to John 13. 
John chapter 13, I want to show you an illustration of how this actually works itself out. John chapter 13, picking it up at verse 12, and reading through verse 17. And I had said earlier, this is the same scene that I referred back to, where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. Notice what it says. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for I am so. If I, then the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You see the illustration of this kind of love being played out. Like this agape love practically being played out, but practically not only being played out, but also being exemplified by the Lord himself. For I give you, it's not my words, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. This is a practical command. This is a practical life as a Christian. And who do we Imitate? Who do we copy? Who do we mimic? It's not Manny that's up here teaching you these things and preaching these things to you. Not even John or Peter or Paul who write these things to you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself who says, I am the example of this love. He is the one who taught us these things. The teacher and the Lord has become an example. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, if you've been taught these things, if I have taught you anything, as if Jesus is saying, if you have learned these things, you are blessed if you do them. You see that illustration being played out, right? And this is the other illustration Paul draws from that. I think he has this picture in his mind when he writes Romans 5 and 8, when he says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he continues and says, I mean, for a righteous man, one might give his life up, but we were not righteous. We were enemies of God. That's the case that he makes in the re remaining portions of Romans chapter 5. And yet God bestows his love and shows and demonstrates his love for us. It's already demonstrated. The, the point I'm making is, these things you have been taught by God as to what love looks like. You know this. You have been convicted of this love. That's why you're sitting here. This is why you're, you're a Christian. You have faith in Christ because you know what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Again, the emphasis there is for, so, for God so loved the world. So you know these things. This is what Paul is saying. You have been taught by God on how to love one another, how to agape one another, to show the same love that was shown to you to fellow believers in the same congregation. How has God shown that to you? How has Jesus become an example of that? We just read it. And Paul emphasizes even 
this is how God demonstrated his love towards us. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice also that the Thessalonians, even though they didn't need to learn this, they didn't need to have somebody write about how to love one another to them. That is to say a lot, by the way. In contrast to the Corinthian church, which they really, really need, needed Paul to write to them about what love is. That's why we find 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in that epistle. That church did not love one another. They were all clicked up in, in contrast. They were all grouped together and they're like, oh, I like, I like Paul. No, I like Peter. I like Apollos. No, I like Jesus only. And then they had their own little cliques and they were infighting in between them. And then there was sexual immorality in between them, something that is not even heard of. And pagans, there was so much that was going on. Paul is saying, oh, I have, I have the gift of tongues. Oh, I have the gift of prophecy. Oh, I can see things from afar. I know how to read the Bible and understand it like that and grasp it. And I can teach. I have all these spiritual gifts. And they were so divided. Paul says, listen, if you are not loving one another, none of this matters. If love, agape, is not at the center of the church, you're just a clinging symbol. A noisy gong. Just instruments being hit randomly at random. Just making noise without love. That's what that means. That's the contrast that we can see from the church of the Thessalonians to with the church of the Corinthians. They needed someone to write to them about love. They needed to be taught in terms of love. Because it's an essential aspect of our life as Christians. How we ought to love one another. But also, another observation that I want to, to make in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 10, uh, 4 and 9 really, actually in, in verse 10, is that the Thessalonians didn't just learn how to agape one another, how to love one another from God. They just didn't learn it and have it as a head knowledge. Notice what he says. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed, you do practice it. They practiced it. They showed it to one another. Because really, love is the first visible fruit of the Spirit. Right? Galatians 5.22, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is, first one, love. That's the first visible fruit that the Spirit bears in your life. You can see it. You can practice it. You can practically enjoy it. You can sense the love even. You know, this is something not to be so superstitious and mystical, but you can walk into a room and, and, and have fellowship with one another and you can be in a group of people and still, you know, feel cold. Like something doesn't seem right. Something is fake. Something is forced. You can kind of sense that. As opposed to when God has truly loved you and has taught you what His love is and has taught you how to love one another and you are enjoying fellowship with one another, that, that is that sense of it. You can enjoy it. That's joy that comes out of love. Love, this love is the outward evidence of Christ-likeness. I want to be like Christ. I want to be like Christ. It's not just because I can quote 67,000 scriptures. And I have a, a very biblical answer to every situation that I'm in, that I'm like Christ. How do you love your brothers? This is the visible, practical evidence 
of your Christ-likeness. How are you showing love for one another? As an illustration of what that looks like, right? This mind of Christ, if you want to be like Christ, if you want to have this mind of Christ, flip with me to uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It's, it's not a far trip from 1 Thessalonians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Notice what Paul says. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion fulfill my joy, that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Here's the practical part. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory. That is to say, I want to be seen as more important than the next person. For what reason? Just because. I, I, I like that feeling. I feel like everybody knows what selfish ambition is. I think everybody knows what that, what that is. But with humility of mind. Here's the hard one. Regarding one another as more important than yourselves. You see the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you? Right? Is that person more important than you? Do you regard that person? It is a practical litmus test. Is he or she more important than you, or are you the most important person in this universe? Are you the center of the universe, or is Christ living in you? So Paul continues and says, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now he's not saying here, don't look out for yourself. That's why the word merely is inserted there intentionally. Not just doing that all the time. Not just you are always thinking about that. So it's okay to look out for yourself. I mean, if you get hungry and you're starving, you need to eat. Right? So, but also looking out for the interests of others. Why? Notice verse 5. Have this way of thinking in yourselves. Think like this. Why is that? Because this mind, this thinking, was also in Christ Jesus. And then you guys know the rest of it, right? You guys know the rest of the, and you guys can see it right there, that Christ Jesus, being found in appearance, I'm, I'm sorry, um, ha who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made like a likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul gives us this whole explanation of how that actually played out in the embodiment of this love in Christ, that he emptied himself, even though he is divine, even though he is eternal, even though he is all-sufficient, even though he doesn't need anything from any one of us, he emptied himself, not by pouring himself out in subtraction, by taking something on that is almost unbecoming. He emptied himself by becoming like us, by becoming a human being, taking on human flesh. This is the mind. This is, if you're pursuing Christ-likeness, this is the mind we ought to have. 
towards one another. Not that you're divine and you need to be a man. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But everything else, verses 1 through 4. Especially verses 3 and 4. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but being humble and minding and regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also interests of others. That's the kind of attitude, this loving attitude that you are taught by God. And this is the kind of attitude that the church of Thessalonica, Thessalonica was practicing. And you can see that clearly. Love being the first visible fruit the Spirit bears in your life. Lastly, Paul, we find in the last statement of verse 10, Paul is urging the Thessalonians not to be complacent. That they cannot love one another enough. Here's a question that I want to ask you. How much love for one another is enough love? I mean, you can answer it in your heart, or I can give you the answer. How much love is enough love? The answer is kind of like the same answer that you would have for money, even. How much, how much money is enough money? You ask a rich person, they will always say, always say more. How much is enough? More. How much love is enough love? More love. Can you be too loving? Is there such a thing as somebody saying, ah, you know what, ah, that person is way too loving, man. I don't even want to hang out with him. He has way too much love for me. Like That's not something that people would walk away from. People that are saved, at least. If you understand the love of God that has been poured out, how much love did God show you? For God so loved the world. This eternal love that God had for you. God didn't love you when you were born. God didn't love you when you prayed for Him to save you. God didn't love you when you start reading your Bible and praying. God's love is not more or less abundant according to your own activities. God loves you eternally. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians, what matter of love? This, the, the love of God, the depth and the height and the breadth and the width. I mean, it's, it's so deep and it's so high and it's so wide and it's so long. Every, that's four dimensions, right? The, weird. <laughs> the, the 4D of love, so to speak. Paul prays for the Ephesians that you may know, you may understand the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of God's love. It is so much love that is poured into you. And therefore, that same love you pour into one another. So how much love for one another is enough love? More. This is why Paul says that you have no need for me to teach you or to, for me to write to you. Because God has taught you, you're already practicing it. It's visible in, your, in the way that you communicate with one another. And yet, you need more. Don't be complacent. Because it's so easy, right? You know, I come to church. I say hi to four or five people. I reach out to six, seven people a week. And then I pray for them when I remember them. I'm nice to them. I smile, you know, and if they need a door held, I'll hold the door. You know, if they need help with something, I'll help them. You know, I answer a few questions. Whew, I'm so loving. That's good. I've, I've met my quota of loving this week. I sound so silly. But 
I can get into that mindset. And if you're honest, you have gotten into that mindset. You know, I have my group of friends and, you know, people, um, and that's fine. But it's for all brothers. This is what Paul says. You practice it toward all the brothers who are in Macedonia. They didn't just think about the little small church that they were a part of, but they practiced it even regionally. It was seen, it was visible. But they need more. By the way, this has a direct link with the prayer he prays in chapter 3 and verse 12. Look at the prayer that he prays. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. You see that? He prays to God that God will increase, not just increase it, but overflow it. Like that's the picture of a, a pitcher under, under, under a, a, a water, um, a pitcher of water under a fountain. Not a water fountain, I'm talking about like if you were to put a, a bottle of water on a rock under the Niagara Falls. That kind of abounding in love. That's what he's praying for. It's just drenched. Can that, can that water bottle or that pitcher or that bucket, whatever you want to put underneath it, can that be so full? Or can it be empty? That kind of abounding. That's what Paul prays for. And then down here he says, pray for more of that. This is a direct link between his prayer and what they're doing and what he's urging them to do. This increasing love is not something that you are to muster up on your own. You don't turn the faucet on for the Niagara Falls. It just is. So we don't turn the faucet on and off of the love of God being poured in us. We have no control over that. That's, that's His sovereign hand that's pouring His love over us. It's not something that you muster up. It's not something that you do in and of your own strength. It's not something that you have to work out by yourself. It's a direct result of God's grace poured out through Christ by His Spirit. This is what's happening here. So when he says, we urge you to excel even more in loving one another, it's directly related to what God is doing as an answer to his prayer. See, like I began, like I said in the beginning, it's easy to consider and to live your Christian life individually. That I come here, I do a few activities, I go home, I have my little devotional time until I come here again. There's no sense of communal, public Christian life. Put more emphasis in your own relationship, your personal relationship with Christ, which there's nothing wrong with that. I said that already. However, the greatest commandment is not just to love God, but it's also to love your neighbor. It's also to love one another. Notice the last portion of our scripture reading from today. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So the case that Paul, uh, John is making here is, you can't say you love God without loving your brother. There's no such thing as, I'm more concerned 
And the only thing that matters is the way that I love God and not loving one another. And this is the commandment we have from Him. You see that again, right? It's not a commandment of man. This is a commandment that God Himself gives us. That the one who loves God should love his brother also. No explanation needed. You don't need to know the Greek of that sentence, that commandment. It's clear as a day. Is that the condition of our church? Is that cannot be written about our church? By way of application. Concerning love for the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Are we taught by God what love is? Are we practicing it? If we are practicing it, are we excelling? I urge you. I encourage you. That you have been taught by God. And you have been practicing it. But I urge you to do it more. We must seek the face of God and His wisdom to have such love for one another because we can't work it out. You and I are inadequate to do it in and of ourselves. We can fake it, but we won't make it. Truly genuine love for one another that is taught by God can only come by the Spirit who fills us as we are walking in obedience to Him. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, You are so gracious to us. We are undeserving of Your love because of our sinfulness, our rebellion, our hearts are prone to wander from your ways and from your love. But Lord, you did not consider our merit to love us. You demonstrated your love to us, Lord, while we were yet sinners and enemies by sending your son Jesus Christ to take on flesh to be like one of us to be a slave obedient to your will even to the point of death on a cross. Through that you have shown your glory to us by that name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his life he has become our example and our teacher and our Lord. Through his death he has atoned for our sin. Through his resurrection he has given us New life filled by your Spirit. And through his ascension and his coming back has given us hope that one day we will see him and we will be like him. All of this is a demonstration of your love for us. And because you have loved us, we love you. And because we love you, 
we love one another. Lord, make this confession a reality for our lives. Teach us how to practically, day by day, increase in that love for one another as you cause us to increase in love towards you and your Son, Jesus Christ, by your Spirit. Lord, it is only that that we desire for Christ-likeness as a proof and evidence of that. We ask that you work this out according to your will, the riches of your mercy and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.